Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond Styles, and I am the master chef, cooking you up something succulent and divine. It's your boy, Zaheer, and we are serving hot talk and cool iced tea. And I'm Mia Mix, here to set the tone and make sure the mood is right. So come on in and get comfortable. Pull up a chair, have a seat. You can even take your shoes off. Wait, not if your feet is down. <laughs> oh, hell no. Welcome, Welcome to Marsha's Plate. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be alright. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Plate. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Plate. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So, Let's get started. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond. How are you? Thank you for joining. Thanks for listening. I had a special guest for y'all today. So um, let's introduce, what are your pronouns? I use all pronouns. Whatever? Yeah, whatever. And my name too, or you could just say Ola. Ola. <laughs> so, of course, we have Ola <laughs> Azaze. Um, he is the project director and, of at... Transgender Law Center? The Black LGBTQ Migrants Project, or BLMP. BLMP. Yeah. And what do you do for um, Transgender Law Center? They're just our fiscal sponsor. So they, they handle, we use their tax ID number, basically, but we're, we're our own thing. Yes, as it should be, yeah. we're out. Come on, <laughs> fiscal sponsors, come on, we need more. <laughs> Bring your coins, let us do the work. <laughs> so... I brought him here because he is a trans masculine being that I have admired since I met him at Creating Change. Is that what I think? Maybe Creating BTAC years ago, but then we we reconnected at Creating Change. Creating Change. I think I don't think I met. I think I met you, but not like in any kind of serious fashion. Just like, hey, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. But exactly. actual us sitting down and having some type of um, connection was um, creating change for yeah. me. Um, yeah. And so you all were introducing the trans agenda. Yeah. And that was beautiful. You know, there was some weird stuff happening during the ceremony, but <laughs> it was a beautiful <laughs> project that I really uh, appreciated. Mm-hmm. And ever since I met you, we, we've been, you know, we've been talking and we've been doing other projects together. We recently did um, the trans, um, the Femme Body Count mm-hmm. um, Symposium, which was amazing. I really enjoyed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, I got to get them on here so we can talk about immigration and being black and the intersections of being black. So welcome to the show, Ola. 
Thank you, Diamond. I'm so honored and happy to be here. Um, yeah, you know, ever, you know, even though at BTAC many years ago was like a very brief meeting, but reconnecting at Creating Change, I was like, we got to work together. We got to do some things together, especially, you know, both being in Houston. Um, and even on the transgender front, you know, shout out to uh, Michaela Bradford and Ash Stevens for really crafting that amazing platform that, you know, is for liberation of all tra trans folks. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm blessed to be here. And talking about immigration and blackness, yes. yes. Oh, let's start off with, let's start off with how, um, where are you from? Let's talk about back home. Yeah. So I am a Nigerian migrant. Um, my ethnic groups in Nigeria are, you know, Yoruba on my dad's side and Edo on my mom's side. Um, the Yoruba people are like pretty much the west um, side of the country, and Edo people are like, you know, southwest. Um, so um, yeah, you know, I, I grew up. I was in Nigeria till I was about fifteen. Um, I came to the States um, in 1991, so it's been almost 30 years. Um, and, you know, it's, it's wild because, um, you know, we were leaving Nigeria at a time when there was so much political upheaval, um, a lot of poverty, still is a lot of poverty, and still is a lot of political upheaval. Um, you know, we had just kind of like ended the last military dictatorship, uh, which was something that we had seen for many years. Much of my time there was under some kind of military dictator or the other. Um, and so I just kind of grew up understanding that all those things were really, you know, part of the, the colonial situation that we, you know, were forced into. Um, you know, and the political upheaval, the Poverty was connected to the debt that, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Nigeria as a black majority, as a black country, and, you know, similar to other black countries, being in debt to institutions like the World Bank, and that just, you know, shutting down the ability to really not just survive, but thrive for the majority of folks, you know? So that's what, I, that's what we were leaving behind. And then, you know, our, my port of entry was actually Greensboro, North Carolina. And so that's where we first, you know, that's where I was for the first almost 10 years of my time in the U.S. Oh, wow. I went there yeah. when, I was, when I was in high school. That was one of the first colleges that I toured um, in um, North Carolina A&T. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Ended up going, I ended up going to Jackson State, but the first college that I ever toured was North Carolina. And I really was like this close yeah. to going to North Carolina A&T because they're in Greenboro. Yeah, yep. Yeah. See, yeah. That was, that's definitely a big school. Um, very like, you know, HBCU, a lot of history at A&T. Yeah. So. Well, how was, was it, uh, how was the adjustment culturally? Yeah. And you so, were young, so. I was young. Yeah. I was, you know, I was what like. What feel like being a young person coming from Nigeria to Greensboro? It was, it's so complicated because one, I mean, Greensboro is, smaller, you know, um, compared to like Charlotte, North Carolina, for instance, but 
you know, had, there's a lot of, there, at least when I was there, there were a lot of migrants there. There are a lot of migrants from all over, a lot of migrants from Africa, um, you know, migrants from all over the Americas, um, migrants for all, from all over Asia. So it was like this kind of, it was a very um, diverse city. Um, and also when I was there, it was also very black too. Um, you know, Greensboro has a lot of history when it comes to like, you know, the civil rights struggle and all of that. So, um, so I was, you know, blown away by that. Um, but then, you know, I was also just kind of blown away by how Greensboro represented the, you know, just like the serious kind of racism, um, you know, anti-black racism that we all know too well. Um, and just the division, you know, unfortunately the division between black American folks and black migrant folks that we see. And I think that's changing in the, you know, in America, but it was very much a thing, you know, there, you know, so the, there was a lot of shock around how I was different. You know, my accent was different. Even my hair, you know, I had short hair, you know, uh, Afro-ish, <laughs> it was different. Um, the way I dressed was different. What I ate, you know, all, all of that was different. And in my high school, just feeling like, one, my blackness was different, but then also kind of like feeling like my, I wasn't black enough um, because of that kind of like history I had, you know, that I, you know, that I am African and I'm, you know, a migrant, you know. Um, and, and then also the anti-blackness within me um, keeping me away from the other, from the black American students because of, you know, like there's, a, you know, there's still a lot of education we got to do within black migrant communities in this country um, about really that, you know, about really emphasizing that we're one big black family um, and that we're interconnected um, and that we got to like get rid of these kind of racist ideas we have or folks have about black Americans. And I think that's changing. I, I really do think it's changing. And yeah. particularly now that the internet has kind of homogenized us yeah. in, in our fight and in our struggle. But I do remember, I do remember a very distinct difference when I was growing up. Cause um, how old are you? 44. Okay, I am 39. Yeah. So I, I remember a very, very distinct difference when I was growing up in how we talked about African people and how we engaged with them compared to how we do now. Yeah. And it's one of those things, it is similar to, I would say like colorism, where yeah. that's an intra-community intra thing that somebody outside of blackness might not even know is going on because yeah. they lump us all together no matter what. Yeah. In some, in certain distinct cases. So I know, I remember, um, I, I'm, I grew up in Indiana. Mm -hmm. I remember, so there wasn't, when I was younger, there wasn't a lot of um, African people that I, that I knew in, in Indiana. But when I moved to Boston, Massachusetts, I think I was around, around nine, 10 years old. Um, it was like in 90, 90, 91, 92, 93, around their area. I think I moved in 90. Um, and we lived in a battered women's shelter, me, my mom, and my brothers. And the rules, it was, it was super multicultural. Yeah. And so the rules was everybody, every woman in the house who lived in the house, they had a specific day that they had to cook. 
And so everybody culturally cooked different. And so I remember my mother would be um, talking hella shit. She from, she, her roots is in Mississippi. And and she was like, all these motherfucking, all these motherfucking people, all they do is cook fucking rice. Love rice. Ooh, all the rice that's is jollof rice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but everybody in the in the house, yeah. So from the uh, Latinx people, African people, to it don't matter. Y'all got some kind of dish to deal with rice. My mother was over it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she would be talking about it and going off. She's like, I, I gotta, I still gotta fucking cook because you know all these motherfuckers do is cook rice. So it'd be funny. And so then when I got older and we would see um, like the African ladies and they're dressed in their, um, you know, they're very colorful, um, you know, with their hair wraps and the body wraps. And, you know, that wasn't culturally, that's their culture, but it wasn't the norm in, you know, we've seen a lot more now. Yeah. Yeah. But back then that was something that was really, really distinct. And yeah. I remember my friend in um, fifth grade when I, fr- this is the first time that I had somebody in my educational system that was African. I remember he was so embarrassed that his mom came to school in her garb and he was trying, I could tell that he was embarrassed by it, even though I thought it was pretty and yeah. it wasn't culture, but I'm, yeah. I, I've always been into colorful shit. So it don't matter what it is (laughs) if it's colorful i'm gonna be like yeah (laughs) so i did she she was dressed different different than what i saw but i can tell it made him really really uncomfortable yeah and dressed like that because i i I understand what he was doing now he was kind of assimilating and and um Mm You know, and trying to separate his home life from his school life. And I get it now. But at the time, I just didn't understand why he was so embarrassed. Because in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, your mom is fly. I don't want to say fly because I I didn't really have a sense of um, of fashion in that regards of fifth grade. But I just thought it was pretty. It just was pretty because of the colors. And so, you know, I think this is something that people who are outside of blackness don't understand that kind of nuance in the our culture yeah exactly or if they see it they exploit it to further divide us you know yeah absolutely. but, um, but you know high school pol- high school is brutal i mean <laughs> high school politics oh my goodness the the you know the pressure to you know be the same to fit in all that stuff and you know and i was new fresh off the boat as they say so I was just kind of like, you know, at 15, still trying to figure out my identity and just like figure out all kinds of things about myself. And, and I can imagine feeling that embarrassment that, you know, that he felt because of that confusion I was having and also the, you know, the ridicule that I was also experiencing because everything about my blackness was different, you know, in that context. Um, and there was also it was, there was also a lot of racism happening in that school. It was a large school, Smith High School in Greensboro. I think it's still there. Um, so, you know, there was a way in which that played into my kind of you know my confusion there too. So, yeah, it, it was it was quite an adjustment those first couple years. You're listening to Houston's own MP Trans 101. Oh, oh, oh. Now listen, I know. 
that what is basic trans 101 for me could just be the beginning for you. So this is for your basic ass. basic <laughs> for me in this life could be just the beginning for you. If you haven't heard, the trans iconic journalist Monica Roberts has passed away. This past week has been very difficult because we are, you know, we are just so surprised. We are frustrated. We are sad. We are, you know, dealing with this loss as, at, you know, to the best of our ability on top of having to, you know, organize her services, deal with people's emotionality about the situation, deal with just everything that comes along with the family. You know, there is a shadiness, not shadiness, just some ingrained transphobia when it comes to family who, didn't accept her transness navigating that community expectations and what you want and you know people being fake and people that didn't fuck with her in life now they you know putting up posts and shit and kind of annoys me but that's the nature of being somebody as iconic and who had so much reach as monica roberts um yeah it's 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 quite difficult it's quite stressful it is yeah it's so many layers to this it is so many um so much drama and bullshit uh, avoidable bullshit to this that i am experiencing this week that's why this episode has is a little late going up. It's just, you know, we are. Yeah, I, I really can't explain it. So let me talk about Monica a little bit. So if you don't know, she is a journalist. She is one of the reasons why we see people being misgendered less getting their names dead names used in articles less because she was like a bulldog when it comes to publications disrespecting us in our deaths she really set a standard for how journalists and news reporters covered trans stories there was a time when you was looking for trans event and trans history that trans griot back in like between 2006 and 2008 that trans griot was the only one you would find when you're looking for trans specific history and event coverage 
I remember when I started my YouTube channel, she started um, Transgriot in 2006. I started my YouTube channel in 2008. And we didn't, we hadn't met each other, even though we lived in Houston at the time, we hadn't met each other. We would always reference each other's work. She would reference my work. I would reference her work. And what I didn't know is that um, even though we're 20 years apart in age, we came out around the same time. She came out in late 94. I came out in late 95. And so one of the first people to cover my case in high school when I sued my school to go to the prom in a gown was Monica. She was a writer for a column in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was in Indianapolis. And she actually wrote about my case back in 1999. This is how long she's been doing this activist work and how long she's been in the game. And so I didn't even know her at that time, but um, my family in Louisville would, you know, was sending me information about it being you know calling me saying that it's in the newspaper down here and she was one of the people that put it there and so you know when I met her in back in 2010 we finally met in Charlotte at a conference we, they put us on a panel together and I didn't know she was trans griot <laughs> and so because it's a blog form and I didn't ever see her face um she knew who I was because I was um on you know, on YouTube and it's a video form. And she was like, yeah, we reference each, each other's work all the time. And I was like, oh my God, you're trans Creole. So once I put the two and two together, we just connected. Then come to find out we live in Houston together. <laughs> so once we found out that we lived in Houston together, we just became um, good friends. And um, she's been over my house. I have cooked for her. She is just somebody, if she needs something, I'm she lives six blocks from me. If she needs something and I'm going to Kroger's, <laughs> I'm going to drop her something off um, because she was an elder that I wanted to make sure that was taken care of. And so just having her in my life just as a, um, you know, just as a sister and a colleague, somebody that I look to as my equal that looked to me as her equal it just was something about our relationship that was magical um if there was <laughs> monica you're not gonna find you can't replace monica monica is a a fucking unicorn <laughs> she is a unicorn she is a you know how tiwa queen of jay says that they're womanist race heart race nerds <laughs> monica is a political race nerd <laughs> she is a political race nerd of black trans woman experience that just so happened to be a sports fanatic. Where are you going to find that? <laughs> you ain't going to, there's no second tier Monica or a replacement for that. She is a person that if I needed some political, who, who won, who was the queer person who won um, the race in Georgia, some political race in Georgia or some, anything that, around surrounding politics, I'm going to call Monica because Monica is going to know it. She has like an encyclopedia of information in her brain around politics. And so 
and she would call me. I'm more about, you know, I'm more about cultural shit. So she would call me. Who is that? What was the name of the slave that um, transitioned during Juneteenth Diamond? And I'll tell, I'll tell her it was Lizzie Montgomery. <laughs> she would call me about more stuff like that because I'm more about cultural and historical stuff like that. She's more about politics. So we would bounce off each other. If she was writing something and she needed that information, she would hit me up. If I was writing something or doing a piece about something, I would hit her up. It just was a, a beautiful exchange of knowledge and just she had so much knowledge and I had so much knowledge and it just worked out and that's what made us connect to each other because she was raised how she was her father was one of the first um, radio hosts here in Houston so he was also iconic when it comes to the city so you know it was only and, and he was poising her to be and he was poising her to be a politician. He was poising her to meet the big wigs in the city, to meet the politicians in the city. So this is why she was so interested in politics. It's just her transness took her in another direction. And her mother was a school teacher. And so she had a very um, middle class type of upbringing that led her to be to know the importance uh, politics and that's why she is <laughs> you know this political race nerd and how she made the impact that she did i have people contacting me giving me con condolences all around the globe P other trans women trans men first in the country where i got somebody from kenya i got somebody from south africa somebody from um you know australia s sending condolences and talking about how she affected their life just by by reporting on our events and things that are important to us that so that we know that no matter where we are in the world we are not alone and how she made an impact there you there wouldn't be um uh, uh the jen and mox and the people who are doing media in the way that they are if monica hadn't um you know laid some of that groundwork and you know, set the tone for a lot of people. So I just want to kind of talk about her and let y'all know that we just really lost a titan in our community. And we do have a memorial fund up if you want to give. Um, we are taking care of her services. So that is what we are doing. Um, I think we've gotten to the point of we are not crying as much. We're not crying as much. And we kind of like trying to get this done and honor her in the right way. So, um, yeah, all the links will be in the bottom. I want to say rest in peace, Monica. We are going to miss you. And I hope that um, we take your legacy and grow it because you have affected a lot of our lives and we want to continue grab the torch from you and keep doing the work and that's trans 101 oh my god i want to thank all of our new patrons this week thank you thank you thank you so not only are you helping to sustain this particular podcast, you know, I also donate to other podcasts. I donate to other organizations. I have my 
finger on the pulse of the community. And I know a lot of grassroots organizations that are doing great work out here. So you're not only helping to sustain us, you're helping to sustain other people in a community. Because I put my money where my mouth is. You know, that's just the kind of bitch I am. Community is fuck. <laughs> so thank you. I really, really appreciate you. And if you have not become a patron, why have you not? You can donate as low as a dollar a month. It doesn't matter. Anything helps. Please. Do I have to play Sarah McLaughlin and show you puppies? Like, what do I have to do? Do I have to do resort to what the white people do to get you to give them money? <laughs> Alrighty. Anyway, thank y'all. And the Patreon and PayPal link is at the bottom. Back to the show. So usually um, in the United States immigration system kind of touches lives of like tons of millions of people. Um, And one sector of um, the lives that it touch is transgender immigrants. Um, Usually people who are coming to the U.S. It's for various reasons. The reasons could include um, safety from persecution in their um, country of origin. Um, yeah. It could be, you know, just for a chance at a better life. There's tons of us that can relate to that. Um, um, some trans folks, because of documentation and all that kind of stuff, they can't go through the regular pathways of getting in the U.S. And, you know, there's so many, so many reasons. But sometimes they can, they can come like yourself, documented, and some of them can't yeah. come. Right. Um, can you talk about a little bit about those variations and why that is for trans folks? Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to, to talk about there. Um, you know, I'm just uh, thinking of so, so many, so, you know, many black folks in general, you know, come through the southern border, the U.S., you know, the Mexico-U.S. border, right? Right. Um, and because when you hear about who's crossing the border, you don't hear about black folks. No. Um, when folks talk about, you know, because right now, so many people are stranded in Tijuana, Mexico. You know, um, before COVID, you know, waiting to come in in some way, you know. Um, but you don't hear about black folks. But there are thousands of Jamaican folks, thousands of Haitian folks, thousands of folks from Cameroon. Um, you know, thousands of, you know, black Latinx folks from Honduras, um, you know, from, from many places who also come in through the, through the southern border. And, um, and there, you know, this idiot in office, uh, Trump, has just done so much to basically close down the southern border, um, to basically make it harder to even get asylum like i got my asylum years ago you know when i was you know when i you know i was undocumented for many years um you know i eventually tried the asylum path and you know i was able to kind of you know it it took it took years but i I got mine but it was a very different time these days like people are waiting years and years before they can even um get their asylum so um there's just so many things that have happened that this administration has made happen at the southern border um, that, you know, makes it impossible, you know? Um, there's a situation, there's a policy now, um, migrant uh, protection protocols where folks, um, you know, who are traveling, and you have many Africans, of course, traveling through continents, many Caribbean folks traveling, um, 
through the southern border and trying to come in that way. So this policy basically is like, you know, what, you know, the countries that you pass in getting here, you have to seek asylum. And you have to first seek asylum in those countries before you even get to the U.S. border. Otherwise, you're not going to be. So it's just, you know, and, you know, and that's unrealistic because for many of those countries, it's not even possible to do that, you know, um, especially if you're trans. Um, so, you know, so it's just, it just makes the situation harder. And then, you know, for folks who, are, who, don't come in, who don't come in through the southern border, who come in through other borders of the United States, um, maybe they're coming in through, um, you know, a visitor's visa. You know, they were lucky enough to get a visa in their home countries, which is near impossible these days. Um, a visa that says you can come in to visit, you can come in to, see, to visit your family, so forth. If you're lucky, super lucky to get that. Um, and then, you know, you're here as a trans person. Um, you know, let's say you're Nigerian like me, where it's definitely criminalized. There's a, there are laws on the books that say at a minimum you get like a 14-year prison sentence. Um, outside of those laws, um, you could be beaten, you could be killed, it happens. Um, so for those folks, you know, if you're lucky enough to get a visitor's visa and you come here, um, and then you have to do, you know, a couple things. You either have to try and file for asylum within that first year, which um, for many folks, that's impossible. It's not free. <laughs> um, and, you know, these days to make a good case, you have to find a good lawyer. And even then it's not, you know, that, that's still near impossible. Um, if you don't file within a year, then you're just, um, you know, stuck. No work permits. You can't work. You know, as a black trans person, perhaps the only way you have to survive is now you got to look to informal economies um, to survive. More criminalization again. Here comes the police. Here comes ICE and then detention. So it's like, it's, uh, it's the reality is like really grim, you know. Let me, uh, just for people who don't know, um, explain some of these pathways to me. So yeah. you talked about the asylum pathway. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, I hear about like green card. Is that a pathway too? That's like a, um, is that through marriage? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the green card or, you know, the permanent residency status, that's basically like the next level to becoming a citizen. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you basically have to have a few different ways to access that. I'm, I'm, no, law, I'm no immigration attorney, so I'm going to do my best to summarize, but if you're out there, you're listening, and you need more information for yourself, talk to an immigration attorney. Um, but um, asylum is one way. If, you know, for me, I got my asylum. Asylum means that you're from, just to yeah. them wrong, but for what I'm yeah. talking about, asylum is when you're, there's some kind of upheaval happening in your country, and it is dangerous for you there, and you are coming to the country for safety. Is that legit? That's, that's, one of the, that's one of the justifications. Um, you could also, you know, um, request asylum if you are being criminalized in your country for your identity, uh, LGBTQ identity in particular. If you're being criminalized because you are um, a political dissident in some way, if you're, um, you know, you're facing persecution because of political beliefs. But like if you want to, if you want a democracy, and motherfuckers is trying to wear you out in the country because they don't want a democracy and you, you can come to the U.S. because 
we're a democratic state. They like, oh, we want democracy in that country. And so we can help you be safe if they're trying to wear you out. Um, I mean, you would think that's the way it is. Uh, <laughs> you, you would think. <laughs> um, but more often than not, you know, one, it's like all of this is up for question now with, the, with what Trump is trying to do. Um, but even if you're say, okay, you, you are part of a democratic movement in a country and you're persecuted for that, um, you got to prove your, your wounds, so to speak. So, in, in, you know, uh, in other words, you've been imprisoned, you've been beaten, you've suffered some kind of like intense violence. And even then, it's not. You know, you know, you're still not going to get asylum in many, many cases, especially now with Trump. You know, but that's yeah, but that's one of the that's that could be one of the uh, cases that you could uh, file for under asylum. And then, so the one that was popular when I was growing up was, I need to get to America. I'm pregnant, and I need to get to America so I can have this baby on American land. And so, if I have this baby here. That makes me auto. Apparently, I, my understanding when I was younger, I don't know what's now because of Trump and rules changing. But when I was younger, I was like, okay, so they have a baby on the land, and because the baby is a citizen, the mom automatically gets to be a citizen. No, okay, so that's yeah. what I thought. I was like, okay, yeah. well, the baby is a citizen. But then as I got older, it started yeah. to feel like, yeah, your baby is a citizen because they were born here, but we're just gonna take them away and put them in the system and send you back home. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, because I think, you know, um, that's, not, that's not even the case. Um, like, you know, you think about DACA, um, you know, and those are for, you know, for folks who arrived when they were kids, so it's a little different, you know. Um, but even their folks, you know, uh, who are born here to undocumented um, families and parents, and their documentation is still um, in question. Their legal status is still in question. And, you know, there's so much about this particular question, though, I don't know. But I, I feel like what I can share is, like, one, there's no guarantee that that baby is going to become a citizen. And um, definitely no guarantee the parent is. Um, you know, you know so if anything, um, you know, that parent this, these days will be even more at risk. Um, because, you know, their documentation status could be found out if they go to the hospital first, or if they go to other kind of, you know, um, service providers seeking services. So it's, so I feel like, you know, that, that is, um, is not a given at all. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So then what is, what is this weird ass Melania Trump way that, that people be talking about where if you bring some type of value or something like you got degrees or you got some kind of, um, they were saying that Melania Trump got this kind of visa or this kind of um, citizenship. This was her way because of yeah. privilege, blah, 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 blah. What is that? Do you know what that is about? There are different type of worker-related visas that you can get that the U.S. government, you know, is like, well, we need these types of skills. Um, they usually are very, you know, in like academic field and technology field, um, you know, usually don't benefit black folks, not because we don't have these skills, but there is just the anti-black racism plays out into, into that process as well. 
But, um, you know, so folks can apply, you know, the U.S. government identifies like some kind of like skill gaps or needs that, you know, workers for particular countries um, and particular countries, not even every country um, can apply for. But even that is up for question now because Trump is proposing to end that. Um, and I think part of the justification... After he gets his wife and her parents through. Of course. Right. And Trump's parent was also a migrant. Can we talk about that? Right. He's a first-generation migrant. Trump is. So, um, but yeah, but that, but that um, those different visas are being threatened right now. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. earlier you were talking about... Um, you kind of was mapping how it can lead to the police getting involved and detentions and da 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 da. How yeah. is because I can only imagine this is uh, not because I looked up any research in regards to this, but I'm pretty sure just because of how uh, how I know blackness plays out in American politics and the the state and how it works. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that if we that if there has been studies, which I'm pretty sure somebody has done it of who is being locked up and put and caught up in the prison industrial complex. I bet it's a lot of black migrant people. <laughs> so can you explain that to me? Oh, uh, my goodness. And this is one of the things like, you know, in this current moment of the Black Lives Matter uprising, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, the folks, me and the folks I work with, we always push that when we talk about defund the police or abolish the police, we also got to talk about ICE and immigration enforcement. You know, for, um, for, for LGBTQ folks who are black and migrant, um, hell, for black migrants in particular, the top way, the number one way that many of us end up in detention, which is basically immigrant prison, it's prison, but it's a nice way of saying, you know, the number one way that we end up in, in detention or we end up in deportation proceedings is through the police. So, you know, so it's like, I'm just thinking about my sister Zaza, who's this Jamaican trans woman who's been detained like several years. Like she's, you know, at this point, I don't know, we don't know of any other trans migrant who's been detained as long as she's been detained. Before she was detained, she was locked up in prison, right? And, you know, false charges involving, um, you know, um, I don't want to say too much, but she, she came in through police locking her, you know, police arresting her, locking up after she served her time in prison. Then they took her to detention where she's serving more time. So, you know, that just represents as like, quote unquote, double punishment. You know, um, you know, folks are picked up, black migrant folks are picked up because, you know, police racial profiling, police brutality on black folks, police violence on black folks. Um, police trying to kill black folks. Um, you know, black migrants are picked up by cops, and then that leads to a whole other pathway after they've, you know, maybe they end up serving time in prison, and then there's detention, and then there's deportation. And in many cases, deportation means death. Um, I can't tell you the number of times this has happened. Like, I just remember um, working with an Ethiopian attorney early last year, who was telling me about an Ethiopian migrant who, um, after they were deported, was so sick, like so ill because of the conditions that they'd experienced in detention, they died at the airport. You know, um, you know, we were working on a case last year of a Cameroonian man who, you know, four kids, 
and a wife still in Cameroon. Cameroon is in the middle of a civil war. Um, he came here because he got to, you know, like, I mean, you, you know, survive, support family. Um, he was locked up in Southern California in a detention center there. They got triple decker beds this big, really unsteady. In the middle of the night, he falls and hits his head on the floor. Ice, the, the guards do nothing. Meanwhile, he's having internal bleeding. By the time they rush into the hospital, he's dead. There are all these stories, um, you know, that we don't hear about, you know, in the immigration context because, you know, it's not as visible and even less so for black folks, you know. And then the police is just like, that is one steady stream of like getting black migrants into detention and into deportation. That's police interactions, police violence leads to that. A lot of people act like, like you hear people talking and they're like, oh, they're just coming over here stealing our jobs. But actually, if you pay attention, for real, for real, it's really hard. Sometimes it's really difficult for migrants to maintain work. Like it's really, you know, yes, if somebody is, um, you know, got some illegal under the table thing where I'm hiring all these migrants to come help me build this house because I won't have to pay any, you know what I'm saying? I don't have to pay insurance, da, 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 da. Yeah, if, it, if it's some kind of illegal thing like that, yeah, they're taking positions because these motherfuckers who own these companies are not setting up yeah. <laughs> their business right so they can yeah. actually create jobs. They actually yeah. are trying to cut corners by hiring migrants. But when we talk about just companies and working, a lot of times they don't have documentation to work. And right. so they're not taking jobs. Right. <laughs> so can you explain right. that a little bit? How, you know, how you know, employment instability is one of the, some of the main reasons, one of the main challenges for migrant workers. Yeah, I mean, you know, like even the reason that many folks come here, you know, like Nigeria, for instance, like the, the debt situation in Nigeria to the World Bank means that there's so many things um, on the economic tip that the government can't and won't do to ensure, like, the majority of Nigerians have access to jobs that pay them a living wage, right? So you have poverty on like an intense level for the majority. We're talking about a country that's like millions and millions of people and the majority are poor. Um, you know, you look at other black countries. I mean, look at Haiti. Um, you know, look at Jamaica. You know, like you, you name the black country and um, the U.S., you know, Western powers have their tentacles in the political and, ec and economic life of that country. So what does this mean? It means that um, for many of us, there is nothing that we can do in our homelands to survive and, and, and help our families survive. So it's either a choice of continue to just, you know, and this is not for everybody, I just want to be real, but for many of the folks who are here from black majority countries or black countries, it's the choice of like languishing in this like severe poverty situation or migrating to somewhere where you can, where you and your family and your community have a better likelihood of surviving. So then we get here and we exploited, you know, we're criminalized, blah, blah, blah. So I put the blame, you know, and I understand that for black folks, whether you're migrant or not, there has been that narrative of like coming to take jobs. And I know that narrative is changing as people are understanding more. But I, I put the blame for the increase in people like me being forced to leave our homelands. I put the blame at the U.S. 
to the U.S. to speak because when you say you're going to go to Africa and set up all these military operations all over the continent that are keeping the oppressive, <laughs> some of the oppressive governments in place and making sure that they continue to enrich their pockets at the, at the expense of the average, you know, you name the country or person on the continent, then you're saying that you're going to make our countries unlivable for us. And you're saying that you're going to force us to have to leave. And where are we going to go? <laughs> we're going to come here. We're going to go to Canada. We're going to go to, you know, the UK. We're going to go to Europe. You know, we're going to go to these places that have historically just, you know, like pillaged. Um, because that's where the wealth is now, the wealth that we built. So, um, so that's, that's my kind of like roundabout answer to that is like, I just feel like to me, that is a question of like the U.S. U.S. imperialism. Um, you know, um, that's a question of how Western powers just, you know, reduce our, our ability to govern and create, you know, um, lives where we thrive, where we're not dependent on aid from foreign powers, you know? That's what it feels like. It feels like you, you, you set me up, you come to the country to pillage and um, steal resources and to um, solidify your power within the area. It affects our livelihood. It affects yeah. our war, da 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 And then when we're running away from the shit that you fucked up, yeah. <laughs> now you want to fuck us over when we come over here, you know, to find yeah. a way out of it. So, yeah. That's fucked up. <laughs> and what the U.S. does to, you know, you know, black Americans here. I mean, you know, this country was built on, you know, the land of, you know, in, indigenous folks and on the backs of, of black folks. So it's the same thing U.S. is doing here to black folks as the U.S. is doing to other countries, you know, that are black or black majority. Another challenge that um, trans individuals that I, when I was looking up before I, when I was preparing for this interview is, is homelessness. Um, when we look at the, um, the National Transgender Discrimination um, um, Survey, these are a couple of stats that, that kind of stood out to me. Um, undocumented non-citizens are more twice as likely as all trans people to report being currently homeless. So that's like 4%. Four to one point seven percent. All non-citizens are almost twice as likely, thirteen percent, as all trans people to be physically assaulted in places of public accommodation. Yeah. Um, undocumented migrants are twice as likely to have been evicted because of their gender identity, twenty-one yeah. percent, compared to all trans people. So yeah. I, I want you to understand, people who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> Here on March's play, we talk about the disparities. Yeah. of trans people and how dire some of these numbers are in regards to trans people. And so what we're talking about is how if, if you are a migrant, just like anything else, just like any other demographic, if you are a migrant or undocumented person who, um, it just, when you intersect being undocumented and being black or, and being trans, it makes your situation even worse. 
Yeah. <laughs> it makes it even worse than what we already know being trans makes it worse. So can you talk about, have you ever, have you ever, you, you in a different situation, um, but have you ever met people who are homeless because of their undocumented status? Yeah. I mean, all the time we, um, I mean, actually there are some rapid response requests in that area that we're going to deal with right now. It's part of the reason that we, you know, we do cash assistance, you know, um, related to COVID because there's a lot of undocumented trans folks. A lot of undocumented, just a lot of undocumented LGBTQ migrants in general right now that are, you know, dealing with houselessness or homelessness. Um, you know, for our cash assistance, we have well over 400 people who've applied. I would say 60 to 70 percent of those folks are in some form of homelessness, so definitely queer or trans and or trans um, and migrants. So um, this is a big, this housing thing, it's felt by so many different black communities. I know with black immigration, it's, you know, it's felt in a particular way, in a particular way that's also intense. Um, I, you know, I would say that, you know, for folks, one of the areas in which we kind of, we've, we've jumped into this issue is particularly for folks who are leaving detention, you know, um, because they, damn sure don't have any kind of legal status still. They're still going to be playing the waiting game. So that means that they can't work legally. How, they, how are they supposed to make money? Um, you know, we, we, were work, we were working with somebody uh, last year who got out of detention. We fought to get him out of detention. Um, after detention, we were fighting to get him housing. Like he was basically pushed around from one shelter to the next. Um, you know, definitely could not be out as queer in these spaces. Like, no, you know, for, for his safety, um, had no one here, but, you know, us, BLMP, the community to support him. Um, and is still dealing at some point, like he was just living in his car. And this is in California, you know, still dealing with it. And this is like almost two years since he's been out of detention. Um, you know, so we, we kind of jumped into that space because for black migrants in particular, there aren't a lot of organizations that prioritize us for one. And then if you're LGBTQ, definitely not a lot of organizations that prioritize us. And so we, you know, we help by connecting folks to money, connecting folks to, you know, what they call sponsorship, which is where, you know, in order to get released, you basically have to have somebody who's willing to like vouch for you and be responsible for you and house you, you know, so we help connect to that. Um, we're finding that for trans and queer folks, it's particularly hard because now you're talking about homophobia and transphobia, people not wanting to open their doors, um, family members even not wanting to open their doors for their own kin, you know? So it's even more intense for trans and queer migrants who are black, you know? Um, if you're not, in, if you're not in that whole detention situation, let's say you're just out um, trying to find a space, more likely than not, you don't have a work permit. Now we're in COVID, so if you were able to work, you are most likely have the most like expendable jobs that, you know, you are probably, you are probably let go as soon as the COVID situation hit, right? So you were probably the first to be let go. Um, 
you know, and maybe if you weren't, maybe if you're working under the table, you're a damn sure the person you let go because there's no recourse for you legally. So, you know, that's what we're seeing is that one, it's harder to get legal status. Two, you add in homophobia and transphobia, and then you are dealing with some intense, um, you know, ideologies in people's minds in terms of who's worth, who's, who's, who's human and who's, who has value and who deserves to be housed, you know? So, um, so that's what we're coming up against in, in that issue. And this is why having an intersectional, um, more robust platform and programming in, in like nonprofits and in um, and anything that you're doing that you're trying to solve social justice issues is yeah. really important to be intersectional and really think about the people who are missing and not at the table. Um, another element is, that, I, that I hear about is the lack of healthcare. So yeah. when we talk about, um, you know, for, for tr- undocumented trans folks, they, you, non-citizens are more, t- more than twice as likely to not know their HIV status. Yeah. Um, they have experienced like phys- literal physical assault <laughs> more than twice than the normal rate of people who are trans in yeah. medical settings. Um, yeah. Most of them have very, very low rates of insurance coverage. Um, they, it, it's, it's having, just having access. Like you literally, you're worried about going to the hospital because shit, are they going to snitch on me? Are they going to call yeah. ice on me? Are they going to yeah. do all this kind of stuff? So, you know, you can't even go and do things to prevent something, to catch something before it gets bad. Usually by the time you get to the hospital, it's already fucking bad and maybe can't turn around. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I feel like you just basically, like, you know, like, described it. I mean, it, it is that intense. Um, you know, health, having, you know, adequate health care, not even good health care, adequate. <laughs> <laughs> the, adequate. The bare bones sucking basic. Right. It's so expensive in this country. Um, it's so, so expensive. Um, I'm one of the privileged few as a, as a black trans migrant where I have a job, where it comes with my job. The, the majority of black trans, hell, the majority of black trans folks in this country don't have that. So not to even talk about black trans migrants don't have that. So, so if we're looking at a situation where your health insurance and your health care is dependent on your job and you don't have the legal status to acquire a job, um, or the job you have is not even protected enough that they are mandated to give you the adequate, the bare minimum of health insurance, then what does that mean? It means that, yeah, you're not going to have access to any kind of preventative, you know, within the healthcare institution, any kind of preventative care. Um, if you're undocumented, trying to access care in a hospital, usually, you know, it probably is just going to be like the emergency you know, the emergency room type healthcare, where you go there when things have already gotten so bad. Um, you have to worry about whether, like you said, is this person going to, you know, reveal my status? Is this going to jeopardize my status? Because it's not just me. I also have family, you know, or maybe it is just me, but I can't risk getting deported because that means violence and or death. 
you know, so it's like violence and or death or my deteriorating health, you know, so it's like, those are some of the choices that many, many folks have to make. Um, and, I, and I think it's a very black experience because it's not just migrant. Um, but I think when you bring in the migrant aspect, there is an additional layer of fear and an access for folks. In this administration, it just feels, even though, you know, what, re what was revealed to me, um, you know, during the 2016 election, we, you know, we heard that Obama, you know, compared to anybody else, he had deported a lot more people compared yes. to even Bush. Yeah. So, um, which well, for me, doing the research during the election, because everybody kept on say, talking about um, Obama and his immigration laws and how, you know, Democratic, the Democratic side kind of failed, you know, immigrants in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. So, in this administration, I have heard more and more, you know, I'm hearing cases of trans people being, you know, found dead in their cells at detention centers, um, yeah. being abused, being raped, being all these kind of crazy things. It, has this stuff been happening or we're just hearing about it more because politically it's important for us to hear about it? It, it serves you know, the, the left to tell these stories now because they have an enemy that is against immigration like Trump. Has yeah. this stuff been happening or we're just, or it's just happening more frequently now? Because, you know, when we talk about like trans deaths, you know, it's frequent as shit currently. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but yeah. we know it's been happening, but it just seems like it's way more and more frequent now. Is this, is that, is now with the, these immigration situations, are they, is it similar to that kind of thing where it is happening more frequently or is it, it's been happening, but politically we're just hearing about it more? I think, you know, I think it's both. Um, I think it's, you know, it's been happening, but one of the things, you know, that's happened that started with Clinton actually kind of, I mean, kind of before that, but I think Clinton really cemented it and then Obama took it and ran with it um, was crime laws, crime laws. You know, Clinton introduced a bill, I think it was in 94, um, that became law that introduced, you know, all kinds of like the three strikes, you're out, yeah. all that stuff. One of the things that that bill did too was like certain quote unquote crimes that folks were doing just to survive, those became deportable um, crimes. And I, I keep saying crime in quotations. Um, and so that expanded. So all that, all that law itself, that bill, the 94, I think it's 94, 96 crime bill, yeah. it expanded the prison industrial complex. It also expanded the detention deportation complex on the immigration side. So that means you got more beds to fill, you know? Um, and so because you have a bigger detention situation, you have more people that are getting de detained. And then you have a bigger de deportation um, system, so more people are getting deported. So then fast forward to Obama, Obama deported millions of people. Like he was nicknamed the porter in chief. But you know, that, the setup for that was in Clinton's time and he just kind of like really, really implemented it. You know what's so annoying about that and pisses me off as an adult now? And I think you may, I don't know how it was talked about in your household, but as an African-American, 
you know, here. That motherfucker was put on such a pedestal. Like, yeah. I remember him being on Teen Summit. I remember him fucking playing the saxophone. I remember him saying that, you know, he tried, he smoked weed. And black folks was just eating it up. When I was younger, it was like Clinton, 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 yeah. Clinton. Like, you can hear it in my household. You can hear it in the, con the, the rhetoric of, um, you know, just, just kind of conversations people were having. It was like Clinton, Clinton, Clinton. And then now... Now that I'm older and we're in a whole different place, I'm seeing the effects of the shit that he had put into place. And it's like, oh, this is so fucking annoying that oh we God. were bamboozled and <laughs> thinking that this motherfucker was good. But even then, I remember doing research about why white women voted, um, you know, how they're voting, um, their voting history. And, you know, traditionally, white women vote on the side of the right. Traditionally, they have like the 53, 54, 55% that is going towards conservative, you know, the, um, politics. Yeah. But the one that it was the most unconservative was the Clinton campaign. Yeah. And the reason why, studies show, is because it was one of the most racist campaigns. His campaign, the tough on crime, the bill, all that kind of shit, the, the rhetoric that they sold about super predators that Hillary helped him put out, all that shit. The reason why they were able to convince more white women to come over to the left was because it was so racist and it was so against black people. And so, of course, black, the, yeah. some of the white women was like, sure. Yeah. Hunker yeah. on, hunky over to this motherfucking um, Democratic side even more because they're talking that good anti-black shit. Yes. So it's annoying being an adult now and remembering the kind of loving, welcome this motherfucker to the cookout type of conversations that I remember my parents having, that I remember motherfuckers in the streets having when I'm washing cars or going to the car wash or going to the store, community candy lady, and they're having a conversation. These, it was so like affirming. It was so like, oh my God, we love the Clintons. Yeah, I so mean, that's how was it? That's was right. your, how how was it in your house? I mean, because I mean, I was I had been in the country just a few years, you know, as he was running, and yeah, I mean, I think at the time I was what fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, somewhere around there, um, and at the time, you know, my mom, who I was living with at the time, was just like, you know, this is a black president, this is a black, you know, this is gonna be good, because you know, we we because Bush was before that, everyone was like, oh my God, Bush is horrible, Bush Senior. You know, so, you know, Clinton was like, like this messiah, like, oh. Right. You know, he was younger, more yeah. charming. Right. He played a saxophone, you know, like. He, he was talking and jiving for us. I know. And I'm like, why are we falling for this? You know what I mean? But, but it was the same kind of, you know, rhetoric in my household because, you know, we were all kind of taken with, you know, we've, we've seen Bush. And here is someone who's pandering to this idea of blackness that, you know, Maybe we have some uneasy feelings about it, but we'll take it for now because it's not Bush. Wow. Uh, Literally cool. Past, yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, even thinking about immigration and that the anti-black rhetoric, the tough on crime and super predator stuff, like all of that in the immigration situation, that really created this whole good versus bad migrant narrative, you know, because then it became like, we want to, you know, we want to expel the bad migrants, and we only want the good migrants. And typically, 
the bad migrants really were the black folks, right? Because right. it's like, you know, the anti-blackness, the criminalization, all that. These are the folks we don't want here, but we are open to the good, mi good migrant. And then the immigrant justice movement took that narrative and ran with it. <laughs> You know, and is now, now trying to undo that narrative in all of its work, right? But but it even had that impact, that effect back then. And you see a lot of this in, and I see the undoing of this. I can't really say that I had a direct connection to it because it just it just didn't affect my life in 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 that regards. But I'm seeing a lot of conversations from um, first and second generation Africans where where they're literally undoing some of the anti-blackness that they were taught in their household and yeah. in their, oh, these black motherfuckers is just lazy. We, we gonna come over here and be doctors. We gonna get our straight A's. We gonna do all of this kind of stuff because, and show you how, how you niggas is supposed to be doing it, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Because y'all yeah. clearly um, are not taking advantage of all of this and in any kind of like negative stereotype that the white folks have sold, it seems like they just sucked it up when I hear the conversation. But also, yeah. the, on our end, on the African-American end, any kind of negative stereotypes, African booty scratcher, y'all live yeah. in Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Ain't no cities over there in Africa. There's no kind of civilization. Anything like that, any kind of stereotype, we were sucking up too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like we all were kind of like just sucking up all of the wrong stuff. And now, in the era that we're in now, we're kind of like realizing, oh, we got bamboozled. Something's wrong. Yes. Something's happening. Yes. Especially first and second generation yes. where, yes. you know, I know the black boys who are um, first and second generation Africans that, you know, they just blend in with the regular African-American black boys, even how they yes. talk, how they dress, yes. da, 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 da. And so they're getting the same type of... Um, Police brutality, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're getting, you know, when we talk about the guy that got killed by the, um, the white lady in Dallas, you know, yes. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like he was a second generation, I think. And so, you know, the same thing. And then they're realizing that, hey, it don't matter all this shit we were doing or this excellence, this African excellence that we were striving for. When you come uh, over here, baby. <laughs> we black. You black. <laughs> Don't matter. We are black, blackity black. And, you know, we're still under dealing with the violence from the state, the cops, ICE, all of it. Um, from white people, all of it, you know. So, I, yeah, I think you're right, though. Like, there's something about younger generation that, that's kind of leading the way. And that's, you know, like, has helped, you know, change that, that narrative and culture. You know, props to younger, younger folks. Um, I think also arts and culture. I just saw Black is King uh, for the first time, Beyonce's uh, visual album video or whatever. And uh, I was just loving all the African um, musicians and singers, you know, how they were featured in there. I think there's something that's happening to um, hip hop um, that's becoming just global Black hip hop now. Um, I, you know, so I think there's something in terms of how arts and culture for black folks is really bringing together just like, you know, black folks from the U.S. from around the globe to create. And then that's also, you know, um, doing something to change that narrative, you know, 
So, and I'm glad it's changing, yo. It's, I'm, you know, we have so much to build on and we have so much to fight against. Um, you know, and I, that's, and I really like this, this conversation that this space, you know, it's like one, one um, expression of that as well, you know? Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I think, I think it's like when I think about fashion, fashion and culture, because of the, the beauty of the internet, absolutely there is a negative side to where there's so much lies and shit that can be spread on the internet. But the positive side is there are people that I never, 10 years, maybe not 10 years ago, but maybe like 15 years ago, that I never would have heard about, that I never would have talked to, that yeah. I never would have been introduced to their work. Um, I recently interviewed somebody from the UK and, and we were just talking about bla how black, blackness manifests over there and the nuances of that. Um, there are trans African activists that I never would have heard about 10 years ago. I came out in 95. Mm -hmm. So back then, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't even think even, it's kind of like now I'm learning about trans slaves. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. When we think about yeah. slavery, I would, didn't even think about yeah. trans and slave coming together, how that inter intersects. Yeah. And then it's the same thing with Africans. I didn't think about how trans activism and I, it has to be some type of activist over here because we're, we're in every culture. Yeah. So I didn't even think about it. So it's the beauty of the internet is that it's exposing, it exposes me to a global sense of, um, you know, activism, global sense of uh, just what's going on in culture, global sense of culture yeah. that, you know, I don't think I would have had access to. Yes. That I, I didn't have access to you yeah. years ago. So yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, no, you're completely right. You know, it's like it, it's helping to like just bring all of our communities together, you know, help us kind of like, you know, vision, you know, vision together, you know, like I started getting into Twitter and I just see, you know, my Twitter feed is just like the black diaspora, very queer and trans, you know, folks just like, you know, dialoguing across borders, across seas, you know, people doing work together, like actual concrete work together. Yeah. And it's like, you know, based in this kind of digital type situation and it's thanks to that so yeah so i feel you it, that's true and then when you think about i remember like just hearing like like people of the black panther party and people yeah. around that era of time talking about how all these global things like when um angela davis was talking about palestine when um you know when we were talking about in v during that time vietnam and they were talking about all these wars that was going on and what was going on in south africa and yeah you know, they were talking about all this upheaval globally. They were like, this is not just, yeah, we're going through something right now in America, but this, this type of anti-Black oppression is, or, or, or just oppression of imperialism yes. is happening everywhere. Yes. And so that kind of, and I just think what's hot, even though they had a connection through letters and newsletters and blah, 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 what we're what's happening with us is that we're getting information much much faster than yeah. they, but they kind of let us know that hey it, this needs to be a global thing it doesn't need yeah. to be something just local and so i think that's you know that's the beauty we get stuff faster we can yeah. you know we can call stuff out if somebody is being mistreated in africa we can yeah. talk about it on march's play we can talk about it yeah. on our instagram we can hashtag it da 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 so if so you know and i think I think that is that is beautiful. It, it, despite all this negative stuff going on, despite of an uptick in the hate, I just feel like those parts of 
what we have, the tools that we have is beautiful. Yes, I agree. And black, queer, and trans folks across the globe, you know, are doing amazing things to like bring down this oppressive, you know, ridiculousness. In Brazil, a whole coalition of black folks, many of them queer and trans, just like, you know, confronted the president asking for him to be, um, to step down, you know? Um, I mean, that's a very powerful movement. In, you know, in parts of Africa, you have trans, pro-trans uh, laws being passed because folks are just like unapologetic as fuck and just fighting for that, you know? So, you know, there's so much happening that our folks are leading across, across the globe. And I, and I get really happy when I see more, um, you know, black organizations here, you know, say that they're internationalist, you know, and really follow through. I feel like this is an internationalist podcast and show, you know, and it's just like really about like, fuck borders, fuck all of these things we need to build. Like we really need to connect more and the technology is there to make it happen. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. <laughs> I appreciate you. I love the work that you do. Um, me and, um, Raquel talked about you on, I did an interview with her um, two weeks ago, and she was just talking about how you and her, you know, y'all just, when y'all were at TLC, the yeah. work that y'all did, she was like, you need to talk to Ola. And I was like, yeah, I'm play, I'm <laughs> I love Raquel, oh my goodness. I'm so glad that you took the time to talk to us and, you know, tell the people where they can find you. Yes, yeah, so um, I, I, this has been amazing. I'm like, time already, it's already been an hour. Um, I, I appreciate you and like just um, respect you so much, Diamond. Thank you so much for this. Um, you know, you can find BLMP, Black LGBTQ Migrant Project. Just go to blmp.org, um, social media at official BLMP. And yeah, this has been really, really dope. I will put all the links in the bottom. Y'all know how I do. Um, make sure you go check it out. I'm sure they got some, <laughs> some type <laughs> of link to donate. I'm going to put it in yes. the bottom. Um, yes. Support. We are out here trying to do the work to create change that we want to see and build community because we know we learn from so many people, particularly me. <laughs> me, I learn from you know, psychologists and sociologists, that community is a core part of yeah. people's survival. Community building is a core part of how to get people um, out of the disparities that they are in. It is a core part of making people feel like they are worth something, feel like they deserve to be here. Um, building community is just, it's, it's just, it's in, it, you can't describe the impact that it has on somebody's life when they know that they are not alone, when they know that they have a support system. Don't, don't matter what the law say, don't matter what any motherfucker, what the, what the uh, rhetoric of the right wing say, it does not matter when they know they got community supporting them. They feel like they deserve to live and they feel like they can keep going and keep striving to live and be and um, pursue their happiness and love. And so, Yes, thank you. That was an amazing way to, to cap it off. And uh, I say I share to that. Um, and thank you. Appreciate you a lot. See y'all next week, y'all. Have a great day. Bye, y'all. 
Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We will be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamondstylz at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, (laughs) (laughs) y'all. Every little thing's going to be all right. Every little thing's going to be all right. Don't you worry about a thing. Every little thing's going to be all right.